Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Breaking point. Has the cost of living crisis pushed more and more people into gambling to cope with rising costs? Leading addiction specialist Professor Colin O'Gara has this warning. This cost of living crisis is particularly concerning because we know that when people are pushed for on their finances that they turn to means such as gambling. Hurricane Ian could be the deadliest in Florida history, according to US President Joe Biden. It made landfall yesterday and it is still still moving across the state today. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. And later, mortgage tracker scandals. Bank of Ireland hit by a record 100 million euro fine. But who will anyone be held accountable? As always, join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. addiction damages the lives of far too many people across Ireland every single day. Efforts to reform Ireland's gambling laws were first mooted almost a decade ago, but the current legislation is decades out of date and has failed to keep pace with the online world. The government's long-awaited legislation to reform the gambling industry is set to be introduced next year, with an additional €1 million Euro allocated this week to progress the establishment of a gambling regulatory authority. But the ongoing cost of living crisis is having a devastating impact on the lives of those suffering from gambling addiction. Earlier today, Claire Brock spoke to Professor Colin O'Gara, a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCD, who was treating addiction at St John of God Hospital in Dublin. Professor O'Gara, you're worried about a rise in what you're saying is people seeking help um, for services for treating gambling addiction. What do you put this rise down to. Claire, we're very concerned at the moment about the rise in gambling uh, around the cost of living crisis. You know, at times of um, uh, recession, at times where there is a squeeze on people's income, gambling goes up. All of the studies over the past decade point towards the same thing. We had a particular squeeze over COVID because people were sitting at home, they had plenty of time on their hands, they were bored, so we saw a spike in gambling there. But this cost of living crisis is particularly concerning because we know that when people are pushed for on their finances that they turn to means such as gambling and people see gambling as a way of multiplying their incomes but we know that in the vast majority of cases people actually lose money when they gamble. Although it's different with every case, in general what sort of sums of money um, are involved here? We obviously treat people who have uh, run into serious difficulties with money. Now, it rain there's a range there, and it's all relative to people's means. So if you have a student 
who gambles whatever money they have available to them to get through the month. That can lead to them not having food and, you know, very serious difficulties on that level. Um, we see professional people who are in jobs who have access to money and steal. And theft is a huge issue in terms of gambling addiction and can lead to, to massive problems. If there's an endless access to money, which in some cases there are, can go into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and sometimes even millions. And, um, the, you know, there are, you know the, the devastation um, that goes with that is, is obviously huge. And, but really, the thing that worries me most is just the drip-drip effect. Somebody who has a moderate gambling disorder and is spending above what they can, can afford and, you know, the impact then is on family in terms of food or provision for children. It really is a miserable condition, in, in, you know, in terms of the impact that it can have. But really, the sums, the upper, the upper end, Claire, there is no upper end, really. If somebody has a gambling, uh, you know, addiction and has uh, ongoing access to funds, they're going to keep gambling. It's, it's as simple as that, really. Are you seeing people coming to you seeking help for gambling addiction, people who may not have had problems before, but that this cost of living crisis is pushing them over the edge. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, since the talk about the energy crisis has kicked in, this people, you know, people are very, very mindful of this. People realise that we're in a situation now where bills are bad, but bills are actually getting worse. And you know, if you have the proliferation and normalisation of gambling as we have it now, it offers an opportunity for people to to sort out those finances on some level. But again, we know that that's not the case, you know. So a proportion of people will use gambling as a mechanism to, to bolster domestic incomes. And we know from data in the UK now, in the past 12 months, we see people are gambling more. And we see Gamble Aware have done a survey in the UK in the last 12 months as well to show that the rates of gambling are going up, particularly in women, for instance. We see that rates are going up. Women may be... Um, have a closer um, you know, finger on the pulse in terms of um, uh, domestic finances and looking at prices. Um, and this is exactly what Gamble Aware is saying in the UK. We don't, you know, we don't have similar data in, in Ireland at the moment, but, but, but that's what I'm worried about. But is that what you're seeing? Because we do generally associate gambling with men as being a problem gambling, as being a male problem. But you're seeing a, a growing number of women and what way are they gambling? You know, what, what are they turning to, to to fuel that addiction? So the product has, has proliferated across many... Um, it's social media, really, that is driving a lot of this, but also, you know, more traditional forms such as magazines and uh, we see across all the media platforms like te television and radio. So women are not immune to that, you know? I mean, yes, we've always had women who are interested in sport, but that was the minority of problem gambling presentations. That would tend to be mainly men. But you can go online now, you have bingo, you have slots, and you've got casino suite products, and also gaming uh, as well. We know for years that certain forms of gaming um, were problematic for women online. So, you know, something like online slots are one of the most dangerous forms of, of, of gambling. The fact that we're hearing that a gambling regulator will be in place next year, does that give you cause for hope? I, I think there's no question the services are overwhelmed. Now, we actually did our study on this ourselves to see what level of service provision was out there, even amongst existing addiction services. And there is very, very little provision for gambling. So there is no question that there's a crisis there. There is, if you look now to get treatment for gambling addiction outside of Gamblers Anonymous, you probably won't get it in this country. And talking to some of the service providers, the statutory service providers at the moment, 
um, uh, Problem Gambling Ireland, for instance, if you talk to some of those, or Extern Gambling, as it's called now, these, you know, these bodies are very concerned about their funding going forward. They can't see, having spoken to these um, excellent service providers, they're not sure that they'll last into next year. Professor Colin O'Gara speaking to Claire Brock earlier today. Well, here in studio now to discuss this issue further is former gambling addict and advocate Owen Coyne, Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond, sports journalist Alana Canan, and behavioural psychologist Porik Walsh. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Owen, do you share Professor O'Gara's concerns? Absolutely, Claire. Um, I think the cost of living crisis has, has had a huge impact on people um, who. Uh, you know, their their pockets are a lot tighter. They see gambling as an easy way to make a quick buck. Maybe that's down to having previously had a win on the horses or a win at the bingo. And they think it's possibly an easy fix to, um, you know, to a short term solution like paying uh, the telephone bill or paying the car insurance. You know, from my own experience, I've been in the, those situations where, you know, things might have been tight towards the end of the month before before payday. And then um, you know, I think to myself, there's a horse running at two o'clock, he's even money, I can double my money, it's a quick fix. And I've often been in this situation where, um, you know, it doesn't come to pass and now I'm in a bigger hole. So I think what's happening is people are thinking that they're going to get themselves out of a hole by uh, going to the bookies or betting online. But in fact, you know, the, the problem is just getting deeper and deeper and people are falling further into debt. I mean, for you, it started off as a social thing, yeah. didn't it? You it know, did. Quite innocently. At, at, but at 14 years of age, you were very young when you placed your first bet. Yeah, I suppose I was a child, you know. Um, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for a 14-year-old going back uh, 15 years ago to, to have a bet and, uh, at the local Greyhound track or, you know, get an older teenager to go into the bookies for you and, and, and have a bet on the soccer pools. So it was, it was very normalised um, back then and there was no talk of um, gambling addiction really. I mean, it's only really since um, Niall McNamee and Oshie McConville have started speaking about it publicly that it, it's even in the media, you know, and even for me and, you know, just an ordinary guy who um, ha has, has been caught up in it um, you know, in my in my teens and in my early twenties, and like, there's no one talking about it. You know, so it, it's when a very you say caught up in it. On what do you mean? How was it affecting your life? How often were you gambling? I suppose it was a slow burner. You know, so I was kind of caught up in it unaw unawares. Like, you know, uh, I had part time jobs when I was in school and when I was in college, and I might get paid on a Thursday, and I could be asking my brother for a loan of fifty quid on a, on a Saturday to to go out with my mates. You would have blown the lot yes, on gambling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Chasing your losses. Chasing my losses, absolutely. You know, it might turn out that I go to the bookies to have a, a, a 20 euro bet or a 10 euro bet, but before I know it, there's the 150 euro of, of, of my wages from, from my part-time job that, that, that's gone, you know. Um, and from there, I suppose, it's spiralled um, over the years. And what kept hooking me in were, or maybe the wins that I would have had o over time, you know, to keep drawing me back. But I suppose uh, the, bu the buzz of it as well, it was definitely a draw. Um, so, so all of those things fed into, fed into my addiction and that's kind of how I got caught up in it. And when you talk about an addiction, you describe that time of your life 
as torture. Yeah, it was. I mean, like, I feel like I lost an awful lot of my formative years because of it. So, like, early 20s, uh, when, when people come of age, like, I, I ended up dropping out of college. I remember I got a student grant fro from, um, from the, the, the county council, about 6,000 euro. And I booked a, a flight to Las Vegas. I was in a casino in Las Vegas. There was an ATM in the, in, in the, in the casino. I was drawing money from, from the casino ATM, betting on blackjack, getting served um, free alcoholic drinks all night and like walked out of the casino a couple of grand in a hole, you know what I mean? But like told nobody about it. Came home from Las Vegas, told all my mates that I was after having the most amazing time. So you play up the wins. Absolutely. And you just dismiss the losses. Yeah. You brush them under the carpet, not just for your friends, but for yourself as well. You know? Alana, Owen's talking there about betting on sports. Mm. And there is, I think, a, a culture here, isn't it, in Ireland, between betting on sports um, and watching sports. They're intertwined. There is research to back that up. Definitely, Claire. It definitely is embedded in Irish culture, you know, whether that be, um, you know, people even don't really think about it, but when they go to the shop and throw in a scratch card or that kind of thing, like you're saying there, and then in sports as well, because, you know, it is so intertwined. People get so invested when they place a bet and then um, they're committed to see what the outcome is. And like what Owen's saying there, people have this image that it's, certain type of people. And while it, the majority may be young men, it can affect people in all walks of life. And even just last year, we saw Tyrone's con Kilpatrick coming out and speaking about it. And he was very open as well about the devastation it can cause, not just the people by themselves, but everybody around them in their circles too. But just like to say as well, you know, um, while sports is the main kind of factor when it comes to betting it, of people who have placed a bet in a book, bookmakers, 93% of them placed it on a sport, a sport event. And when that comes to the, on your phone, 97% was on a sporting event. So there is such an intertwinement there and you can't avoid it. You know, it's, it, let's say, even if you watch the Premier League at the weekend, there's shirt sponsors, nine of the Premier League teams now have a shirt sponsor that is a, of a gambling company. So you switch on your TV, you can see it, you're getting promotional ads on apps. It is just unavoidable and it's a pity that a pastime that is meant for entertainment has such a, an unfortunate downside as well. Uh, Park, how do these gambling companies go about luring you in? It's funny, listening to it over the last 30 years, you see the journey of, of gambling being from something that was done with intention to something that can almost be facilitated through impulse. That in the past where you would have placed a bet, when you were describing going to a greyhound track, you would have to withdraw money from an ATM. We know that when we have money and we spend it, we're more conscious of what we actually are spending. There are steps that one must take in order to place a bet 30 years ago. You would have to go to a betting shop. You would have to go to a track. You would have to go somewhere to do that. Now it has infiltrated so many different aspects of our lives to the, to the point where you now have gambling apps in our phone. You described the, the being on the couch and being able to gamble, being able to watch a match or watch a race, and you see the proliferation of gambling advertisements there. But not only that, it also enters into our phones and apps and nudges there as well. 
And for you, I know, Owen, that was one of the big things, wasn't it? I mean, that was a sort of later in your yeah. uh, addiction, but I think you've seen it now with others. It is it is the online that has become the real monster for people, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think I've heard uh, Professor O'Gara describe it before as the crack cocaine is ga of gambling. And I can definitely relate to that. It just it sped up the amount of gambling I did, uh, the amount of time I spent at it, and the more hidden I became by it. Because um, as we heard there, you know, like the barriers were removed of going to the ATM, driving in your car to the bookies, going in the door, seeing other people. It becomes a lot more hidden online because with two clicks of a button, I could be sitting on the couch uh, with my family and the month's uh, money to pay the mortgage could be gone without anybody knowing. Um, Neil Richmond, the stats are quite shocking when you look at Ireland. Per capita, per head in this country, we are the third highest spenders on gambling in the entire world. Has the government not seen this as a problem? No, of course they've seen it as a problem. And to be honest, we get this every day into our offices. Individuals are coming in, they're telling us the story that I've bet the mortgage or my partner has bet the mortgage. What can be done? Where are the supports? And it's something that's quite galling when you see the ease of it. But it's how you approach this is kind of threefold. Uh, firstly, it's the justice issue. It's the regulator. It's giving the regulator teeth. They've been given the finances in the budget this year. It took us a long time to get that through legislatively. It got referred for five years back for legal review. Getting that regular in place, they've already been appointed, getting in place. Second, it's the public health aspect. It's beefing up those supports for the addiction services, be they institutional or voluntary bodies. And third, it's the financial. It's the cost of living crisis because we see in recessionary times that gambling soars, but so do other things, theft, criminality. And it's making sure that we can try, as we have done, tried to do in the budget in the last week to offset those problems as much. So people will have money, uh, not just money, but credits as opposed to money in terms of their energy bills, taking off the student uh, fees course, uh, if credits, things like that, looking at the cost of childcare to but take the pressure off. Talking about that regulation and that legislation, I mean, why has it taken so long to get to the point that that, that legislation will be published next year? And, we're, and we still haven't seen that legislation. Still, it's still a year away at best. I mean, Fine Gael have been in government for 11, yeah, 11 well, years. It, so Fine Gael introduced the initial legislation in 2013 when we were in government and it processed through the houses, but then it got referred back to the Parliamentary Council, which happened and it got held up and there was a legal debate, not involving politicians, involving lawyers to ensure that we get the legalities right. There's no point so creating... It's you actually... Are you saying it's it's the legal process, it's the lawyers that have held us up for nine years? It's not the lawyers. Years. There's a lot of vested interest in this. There's a lot of things, because you have to do this right. There's no point passing a bad law that actually has no effect and doesn't give the regulator the genuine authority. But what we do have and what we're funding this week is a regulator that can genuinely have that impact online, on our television screens and throughout the industry. Owen. Do you think it's taken a long time, too long? Do you accept that they were just trying to get it right? Yeah, it has taken too long. I mean, I think it's been kicked down, kicked down the road too many times. Um, I know Senator Mark Wall and Senator uh, Joe Riley have done a, a, a good bit of work on it, as has um, James Brown TD. But it, it still has been kicked down the road an awful lot. And as Neil rightly mentioned, there are a lot of vested interests in, 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 um, in, 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 in play here. I mean, and is that a problem? Did, did the government listen to those vested interests for well, too long? Well, at the expense of other people. Well, I know, I know that some TDs were were treated to a day at the races by um, you know uh, bookmaking firms recently. That's in the last couple of months. 
You see, is that you know, a difficult thing? Well, it is for it is for people like me and for people who are advocating for uh, better supports for for uh, gambling harm prevention. When you hear that kind of thing, it's very disheartening because we see, like I know from talking to people on the coal face, the damage that it's doing, and I know everybody everybody here is is, is all we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. But when you ha when you read on the paper that government uh, TDs are at the races with um, vested interests who want, who, you know, who aren't going to want to see this legislation, tough legislation brought in. Um, it is very disheartening. Neil? Yeah, I was disheartened by that, to be honest. I'd be someone who's advocated for the strongest possible legislation, would work particularly closely with Joe O'Reilly because we were senators together dealing with this issue. And it's James Brown, who is the minister responsible for this now. So it's great to have someone working there with Helen McEntee who can push this forward. There are a lot of people who would have made the case it's been about... for too long then, as Owen was saying there, there has been kind of a cosy relationship I wouldn't between call it that, politicians the... and the gambling industry that has perhaps thwarted the passage of this legislation that might have helped people like Owen and the people that Professor Gar is talking about? I certainly think that was a factor, but I don't think it was the full factor. I think it's the, the legislative uh, constraints and the referrals and ensuring that the law is right is genuinely, and that's been cited by everyone, was the big delay. But we've got over that, and I'm very glad we have, and we've most importantly put the money in place. And as I said, it's about the regulation, it's about the public health aspect and the wider financial aspect as well. Um, speaking of the public health aspect, what about publicly, publicly funded programmes, treatment facilities for um, addicts, gambling addicts in this country? Are they there? Do they exist? They're important. And as you can hear Colin talk about there, they're, they're severely underfunded and they're really scared about the impact of the cost of living crisis on this. But they're just one, one aspect of the ecosystem that gamblers exist in. That, that to be a problem gambler right now must be exceptionally difficult given the amount of, of advertising that is available there for them, given the, the almost... The, I can't see how some of the apps get away with some of the promotions that they're offering in order to lure younger and, and less experienced customers in. This is things like free bets, for example, that you have a difficulty, a real difficulty with. Everybody's nodding their here, head in the panel here. There was a, a, an example of Liverpool were playing Manchester United in the last 12 months. And in order to get a new customer through, it was 25 to 1 for a customer, a new customer to uh, bet on whether one of the teams would wear red. That was the, that was the, the bet. Essentially, what the, the, the company wanted to do was to reduce this administrative burden of signing up to become a member. You mentioned that you were uh, a member of many different uh, gambling apps, that there was, you had those there. The more of these tactics that are used, the more difficult it is. The amount of Premier League clubs, the amount of advertising at halftime, all of these things work against people Yeah, and as it's well. very easy to see, Alana, isn't it? If you're told 25 to 1 for uh, two teams who generally wear red jerseys will wear, wear red jerseys, you're going to place that bet, particularly if you're desperate to try and pay a bill and win 25 euro. Yeah, and even I think a lot of it is about the language used. You know, even in sports media coverage, there's often quite talks of like, oh, such and such are favourites and the other team are 10 to 1, you know. And even that brings it up without even being so uh, upfront about it. So, yeah, definitely a big problem. And as I say, the, those promotions uh, are continuously drawing more and more people in. Yeah, I'm just very conscious when we, we talk about online gambling and we talk about sports a lot, but it is more than that, isn't it? It is scratch cards, it's lottery, it's bingo, it's all of this sort of fun, it's presented as fun gambling, and yeah. you don't see any of it as fun and entertaining. 
No, and I think, you know, like the gambling companies are so good at drawing people in. Like they've got the best. Ma- Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Marketeers in the world, you know, um, and there's, there's a reason for that. Like, you mentioned at at the top of the program about um, females, um, the the rise in female gamblers. That's no coincidence. That's down to targeted advertising by um, by the gambling companies uh, offering you know promotions on bingo, offering promotions on, on on you can do online scratch cards, all that kind of stuff. Um, so like it's it, it's not a coincidence and it's not an accident that we're seeing a rise in different demographics not the usual traditional demographics of say the you know the the average joe punter going to the bookies on a saturday afternoon you're seeing um people betting late into the night people um betting on a variety of different markets and also seeing a, a, a new demographic of of of, of people betting all right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks uh, to my panel for joining me on that. Just to let you know, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. My thanks uh, to everyone who spoke to us this evening. Coming up, the tracker mortgage scandal that resulted in the loss of 50 properties, including 25 family homes. Stay with us.
back. Well, the central bank today issued its largest ever fine as Bank of Ireland was hit with a 100.5 million euro fine over its handling of its tracker mortgage customers. The central bank found Bank of Ireland's failures resulted in the loss of 50 properties, including 25 family homes. Well, for more on this, I'm joined here in studio by law lecturer at the University of Galway, Larry Donnelly, News Talk broadcaster, Andrea Gilligan, and former government press secretary, and now a managing director at Edelman, Fergal Purcell, and via Skype this evening, Irish Times business journalist, Mark Paul. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Mark, I just want to come to you first, very briefly, if you can just remind people what happened to some of these uh, track and mortgage customers. Look, it's, it's probably cured the biggest scandal and um, customer scandal in the history of Irish banking. Um, when the financial crash hit in 2007, 2008, a lot of people were on tracker mortgages, which was effectively a price promise forever. They were very, very good value mortgages. And when the crisis hit, very quickly they became unprofitable for banks. They were losing money on them. Um, so the banks, and collectively, all of the banks, almost in the Irish sector, resolved to try and get people off track of mortgages. And um, in Bank of Ireland's case, for example, uh, in relation to the fine that it got today, the central bank found that it issued unclear documents to people, and um, that it, uh, it, it they, they were taken off tracker rates and um, when they didn't know that that was going to be a sanction if they moved on to a fixed rate. And at every step along the way, um, um, the bank interpreted the rules in its favour um, and not in favour of its customers. I mean, the central bank found that um, the Bank of Ireland failed the most basic expectations. And, and the upshot of all of this was that a lot of people who should have been on tracker rates, good value tracker rates, found that they weren't on tracker rates, lost a lot of money. And as you mentioned um, at, at, at the outset there, um, 25 families in relation to Bank of Ireland's situation alone were put out on the street. They lost their homes because of this, um, 50 houses in total, 98 family homes across the entire industry. So this is an enormous, enormous scandal. Um, and, and it showed really, and, and has showed over many years, a rotten culture at the heart of Irish banking. And that's a big, big problem for the sector. And uh, it's something that, you know, it still remains to be seen whether or not the sector has moved beyond that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the other banks, Ulster Bank, KBC, AAB, Permanent, TSB. I mean, they all behaved in the same way. Do we get any understanding from the central bank as to how they all seem to approach this identically? Well, I, I think they, they approached all of this identically because it was a culture across the sector. I mean, Bank of Ireland got fined 100.5 million euros, about 15,000, more than 15,000 customers mistreated. There was 40,000 customers mistreated across the entire sector. And, and that points to a real um, rotten culture at the heart of the entire sector. And one of the problems with bad culture is that um, it, it will always persist if there's, um, if there's a sense of impunity. Um, and uh, uh, no individual has ever been sanctioned in relation to this. There's been, what, about almost 280 million euros of worth of fines dished out to the banks. Um, um, it's been going on for years. They've been, the banks have been dragged through a ditch backwards over this in relation to their reputations. But no individual has been sanctioned. Nobody has been fined. Nobody has been sacked or lost their job. Um, to the best of our knowledge, nobody internally in any of the banks has faced any disciplinary action. And that really has to be the next stage in this. And that, that, that if we're to be sure that this isn't going to happen again. That those responsible Sorry. will be sanctioned. Is there any sense that this will be pursued further? Because it was clear, listening to the central bank today, that they've sort of drawn a line under it. 
I, I, I don't think that the central bank really has drawn a line under it. I think that's wishful thinking in the banking sector and perhaps even from the banking culture board. And um, there will be pressure on the central bank to go after individuals in relation to this. And um, they've already opened an inquiry into one individual uh, in one of the banks. Um, and, and the bank today said that they would follow the evidence in relation to individuals. So they were really dropping heavy hints that they would go after individuals. The problem is, of course, that there are new rules coming in um, to allow uh, a, a, a central bank to go after individuals more. But those rules can't be applied retrospectively. It may ensure that this doesn't happen again. Um, but whatever rules that are there, even if the central bank fails, I think it will feel inexorable pressure to go after individuals now because that's how you change a bad culture is you yeah. get rid of the impunity and you do that by going after individuals. All right, Mark, Paul, uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, Andrea, look, 100 families lost their family homes. Many of these people have been compensated financially, but it is actually almost impossible to think that you could ever compensate for the carnage that yeah. that would have caused in their lives. Look, if you just can think of the families today, and, and when Mark talked there about the, the 25 Bank of Ireland, um, you know, families affected. Like, I wonder how those people feel today, listening to this, listening to the central bank and, and, and the direction that was given. Like, their entire lives for over a decade were under a cloud, this hung, hung over them constantly all through the, those years. Every, I'm sure, birthday, Christmas, car loan they went to get, like every milestone in their life, this was hanging over them. And I'm sure that they are families today listening, thinking, where is the accountability? Mm. Like, where is, why isn't somebody uh, been, you know, put out of a job over this? Why aren't there been more serious, you know, scrutiny of individuals around this? And like, they're the people, and I know from chatting to families, you know, Kira on, on the show and on lunchtime uh, in recent months, other families affected through various different banks. Like, the, the effect of this and the stress of it is something you carry with you for your life. And the breach, Laurie, the breach of trust here, it's just staggering. It's shameful. It, it is. It's stunning. It, it's a combination of wanton misfeasance and gross malfeasance. And they've as much as admitted to it. And the human toll uh, that, that and Andrea adverts to is just disgusting. And, you know, the regulation aspect, of course, is very important. It's very important to hold people to account. But Mark was making the point about, you know, whether things had moved beyond. And I know that uh, they're keen to say that they're a customer-focused bank today. Uh, and even if we look more broadly across the sector, if we want to talk about customer-focused, Look at what AIB proposed earlier this year, mm -hmm. effectively mm -hmm. to decashify loads and loads of banks, which would have had devastating consequences for lots of different people. They did it apparently without any consultation. Now, thankfully, uh, they pulled back from that, but that still makes you wonder, is it customer yeah. focused now? Do you think so, Fergal? Do you get a sense that there has been a real cultural shift in our banks here? Not yet. No, no, I think we're in the foothills of any cultural change. And if, if regulation on its own is going to solve this problem, it would have done so after the crash because there was a significant tightening of regulation uh, following the, 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 the crash and the appalling realisation on behalf of the population that the banks didn't actually know what they were doing in relation to managing the finances. Um, for culture to change, it has to come from within. It has to be authentic and sustainable. Like, I mean, we can... And I don't think the human cost can be measured. Like, these are just numbers on a page, as we've been describing here, OK? Um, I think it's 315 homes that were either surrendered or repossessed across the banks from 20, in a numbers released by the central bank in 2019. 315 homes, you know, lives destroyed. The question is, what do you do now? Okay, so as Mark pointed out, the serial legislation can't be retrospective. We don't know what's happening inside the central bank. There probably is, mm. uh, you know, um, investigations ongoing, and I certainly won't be commenting on them. But here's the thing: they should be. The next step is to do what they should have been doing all along. And we can talk about customer-centric, 
that's a behaviour. That's a behaviour. And I have been doing some work with the Irish Banking Culture Board yeah. and it's, 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 it's unbelievable to see where we, where we were versus where we are. And they are trying to push for more but, customer representation but he, but it, on those boards, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, the voice I, of the customer. Yeah, they're, they're, in the, they're in the minority. But here's the thing. I think they are going to make progress. I think they have to make progress. And I think this economy can't survive into the future unless there's a culture of trust in the banks. It's going to take time. OK, I want to move on to uh, Les Truss, um, to Quasi Quarteng and to what's been happening in the UK, the turmoil there over the last couple of days. Um, as we were saying on the programme last night, nobody had heard from Liz Truss uh, for the last couple of days, but she did take to um, BBC Radio, local radio in the UK this morning. She did a series of interviews uh, where she was to come on and, I suppose, justify uh, her decision. Here she is speaking to BBC Stoke and BBC Bristol. It's also about how we grow the size of the pie so that everyone can benefit. By borrowing more and putting our mortgages up. We need to borrow more this winter for the energy crisis that we're facing. And we're I think that was the right thing mortgage. to do. We're going to gonna spend more in mortgage fees under what you've done based on the predictions than we would have saved with energy. I don't think anybody is arguing that we shouldn't have acted on energy. We didn't have Otherwise, to make it worse, did you? You didn't have to create so many tax cuts that it has spooked the market and is causing interest rates almost certainly to, to jump up. The pound has plummeted. I mean, let's talk about pensions, for example, because one of the reasons the Bank of England so say intervened yesterday and announced this package is because they were worried that many pension funds would go insolvent. Can you guarantee to my listeners this morning that their pensions are safe? Well, the Bank of England does a very, very good job on delivering financial stability. That, and that that, that's is exactly not an answer, Prime Minister. Can you guarantee yesterday? the people's pensions but I want are safe? To, well, the Bank of England do that and they do a very good job of it. But I just wanted to answer the previous point you were making. This is a global financial situation. Sorry, I actually am cringing. It was really difficult to listen to. She went on to sort of blame Putin, didn't she, for some of the decisions that she'd had to make last week and, and that was dismissed. Uh, Fergal, look, you've worked for the Taoiseach. You've, you've been in government, you've advised. How do you get out of this? How does Liz Truss get out of this? Or can she? And no, save any credibility. She won't be getting out of this on her own. This is, she's going to have to be rescued out of this and it's going to be the Bank of England. 45 billion euro, you would think 11 billion euro is a big number, 45 billion unfunded tax cuts with no forecasting, and that's what spooked the markets. Mm. Because there was no forecasting, they couldn't predict what was going to happen to the plan. They snuck the plan in. I was talking to colleagues in London today who are uh, working with Edelman as well, and they are embarrassed and flabbergasted, and they're trying to provide clients with analysis of what this is. And it's, it's got no top, it's got no bottom. There is no exit strategy out of this. And but it's politically, how do you deal with this. I mean, if you were her advisor now, yeah. um, she probably thought going on local radio that she'd get an easier time. She, she clearly underestimated them. What Rish, did you say in turn? Well, Rishi Sunak said this would happen. He said precisely that this would happen, and it has. You can't... Can, I, I hate to say this. I used to get asked, have you a line for that? You know, if you've been in a crisis, you know, someone would say to you, have you a line? There's no language or communication. You have to behave your way out of this. Good behaviour leads to good communications. You can't communicate your way into good behaviour. Um, Andrea, I was just listening to um, some, you know, reports on the on the BBC and the sort of nickname that she's been given is Reverse Robin Hood. 
I mean, that sort of stuff really sticks, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, she's not damaging. for turning. Yeah, I mean, and even in the various different radio, local radio interviews she did, she maintained the, the, the same position all day. What's interesting, though, is that in the aftermath of this mini-budget and even the subsequent um, interviews that, that she conducted throughout the day, like, the... the um, the impact of this in the polls that have come out in the past 24 hours, like that, that's the real telltale, I think, in, in all of this. Labour the Labour Party. They're, they're at 54%. Yeah. Like the Conservatives are at 21%. And the jump from, from this week to even last week, even before she announced the mini-budget, I think they were at 17% was the differential uh, up to last week. It's at 33 now. I mean, the, the impact of this politically yeah. for them is just... It's the, the party conference, the Conservative Party conference this, week. this weekend is going to be... Electric, isn't it? I hope that's, it's streamed live. That's one word for it. I mean, to describe the, the, both her actions and then the, the interviews this morning, uh, it's not a car crash, it's a multi-car pileup. I mean, this is, I don't know how she comes back from this. I mean, look at the polling data. Uh, it would indicate that Conservatives would lose hundreds of seats. Mm. And the thing is, this was forecast by everybody across mm. the ideological spectrum. Is there any spectrum. chance, that, is there any chance, do you think, uh, Laurie, that there's some sense in this economic theory, this economic approach that she's got, trickle-down economics, I think. Reaganomics, somebody else called it. Yeah, I mean, this is almost Reaganomics taken to a very extreme end. I mean, I think it's been pretty widely debunked that it doesn't work. Uh, and what she was at here, I just don't understand. And the big question to me is, I wonder how many of those ordinary, you know, regular members of the Conservative Party are now having buyer's remorse. The reality is, Richie Sunak was backed by the people who know Liz yeah. Trust best. Uh, I just want to move uh, briefly to our own budget, Fergal. 11 mm. billion spent mm. here, really well leaked uh, in advance. So markets, nobody spooked because we all knew uh, what was in it uh, in the days before the budget. But I think the response from the, Republic, the public has been quite interesting, hasn't it? Given the fact that there was an unprecedented spend, you're either blasé about it or unsatisfied. Yeah, I mean, this budget is the best they could do with what they have where they are. I mean, they have left very few bullets unfired here. Uh, they've put two billion into the National Reserve Fund, which used to be the, the rainy day fund, and four billion to commit it to next year. If the volatility is as bad as they say themselves it is, I'd be a little bit concerned that that's not enough. Now, they stay, they stay in surplus, but I do remember, and I was talking to Andrea mm -hmm. before we came on, uh, a budget in 2013 with a three and a half billion euro correction and a budget the following year of two and a half billion correction. That's not a long time ago. I think the government had to do what they did, but it can't stay with inflation. Nor did they, Sinn nor... Féin would completely disagree with you. They say they didn't get this budget yeah. right at all and it wasn't targeted enough and it helped those who didn't need well, the Sinn, money. Sinn Féin are the best political communicators in the game by a long shot. Sinn Féin kind of... They're the Roy Keane of political communications at the moment. They're affecting the game even when they don't have the ball. They may not be in government, but they are wielding an awful lot of power in terms of influencing the agenda. And that is just a political communications fact at the moment. I think this government did a, 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 uh, outlined a very strong budget, communicated it extremely well, but whether or not it's enough, I think the word enough has almost kind of lost its meaning. Yeah. You know, it's entirely subjective. But this had to be done. One of the measures alone... In, in relation to electricity... Um, the energy credits. Yeah. That's 10% of the entire outlay. Yeah. How, how did your listeners receive it? Yeah, very, very mixed, Kira. Um, and it's interesting because, like, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the biggest splurge that we've had in the history of the state. Mm. Everybody has got something. Everybody got something out of this. Families, arguably the winners, but, like, everybody got a little bit of something out of it. And yet the tone during the week I found on Wednesday from people was still a very... 
anti-government sentiment, the kind of the language been used in and around the electricity, the cost of living crisis, despite the fact that we've got the 600 euro energy credit. But the big interest or the big focus, and I presume one of the papers will have a poll out on Sunday, and I imagine government and, and Paris of will be looking at the UK polls this week because, like, they need a serious, serious bump. When and they have when 11 they billion that, to that's throw what it... I'm wondering. And if they don't, Larry, is it just evidence of a general malaise towards this, this government? Uh, Fianna and Fine Gael at this point. I, I don't think they'll get a bump, but I, and I have a great deal of sympathy for them because mm -hmm. they, at the same time, they're trying to assist people, but also not increase inflation. And the big question here is, uh, given how bad things are, are we just going to be back in this place again in a few months? That's what I wonder. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but lots more to discuss after this break with our panel, including Hurricane Ian, which could be the deadliest storm in Florida's history. Larry Donnelly, Andrea Gilligan and Fergal Purcell are still here. And first, let's go to a Hurricane Ian in Florida. Um, Larry, there's God, quite incredible images coming through. I think we have some live footage um, to show you at home. Tampa, Florida, um, well, that doesn't look so bad, but I think there's other footage of you know people wading through um, metres and metres of water, sharks swimming up you know, main streets, it's devastating, really, for people, isn't it? And it's absolutely terrifying, terrifying scenes, I think, in, in that area of Florida. And it's, uh, uh, you know, your heart has to go out to so many people who've been affected by this. Uh, the president has indicated that the, the potential for uh, large-scale loss of life is there. Uh, that obviously would be positively horrendous. Uh, one, I suppose, little good thing that come out of this is I know that Governor DeSantis and Joe Biden, who've had their differences, they're working very constructively uh, together to stem this, to make it uh, as best of the situation as they possibly can. Um, Florida, obviously, this time of year is always plagued by hurricanes. This is not something new. But what I do think is notable in the, in the context of climate change is that scientists are saying the way that this storm ramped up and the speed with which it ramped up uh, is really significant. So again, uh, that can't be ignored. But for now, I think our emphasis has to be on uh, making sure as many people as possible are safe and, you know, get out of there. And the governor did say, didn't he, they've never seen anything of this magnitude before, lest people think that this isn't climate change. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that, you know, look, the, the scenes tell, tell the tale uh, for themselves. So again, uh, the science indicates that the way it rapidly accelerated, uh, this is something you can't prepare for, you can't plan for. That's what makes it even more deadly and dangerous. Um, Fergal, is the message of climate change getting through, do you think? No. I, honest, uh, I mean, yeah, not politically, I think. I mean, what kind of... The, there could potentially be substantial loss of life in, in Florida. And um, we look at these images and I wonder how do they translate politically. We seem to have a, an ability to silo them off. We look at them, we feel empathy for what's involved. We talk about unprecedented, this never happened before, it has to be climate change. And then um, no, people don't want to pay carbon tax. Like, you know, that's the, that, you know, and, and whose job is it to build the bridge between take, making the policy decisions for future generations? Uh, in you the, think in people the don't want to a, pay carbon tax and to make the tough changes in their lives? Yeah, I, I, think the, I think the Green Party have done an excellent job in putting in a statutory footing, um, you know, our carbon future in this country by being in government, and that's going to be Eamon Ryan's legacy. Although they were quite absent from this budget, yeah. weren't they? Well, if you look at the detail, they're not. Actually, they're there. I mean, Kevin Sullivan wrote a very good article about it. Uh, and uh, carbon tax has gone up. So, you know, I mean, that's, that, that's proceeding in, 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 a, 
in the way it should. I, I just think we seem to have this ability to compartmentalise what we see in the images with political decisions and the pain. And the politicians, too many of them know this, unfortunately. They know that they can't push that with the population, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, finally, just before we go, Andrea, I don't know about you, I can't tell you what I had for breakfast this morning, but I can still tell you every single lyric in Gangster's Paradise. <laughs> Which I think I, I learned yeah. OBH back sometime in the 90s. Uh, Coolio, um, the rapper, just... passed away today. It, it, it's an iconic song it is. for maybe just our generation, is it? I don't know where where you were at the time, but I remember um, even, aside from Gangster's Paradise, but his second song, See You When You Get There, I remember that mm. came out just as I started first year in secondary school, oh which was 1997. And I still remember getting the bus to Donegal Town for the, uh, <laughs> I won't say the underage discos, but for the, the teenage discos, discos no idea that what we you're talking used about. to go to. But it was very, uh, it was very much a part of Office's soundtrack to the 90s. And one of the things that really struck me this morning when I, I started to see all the photographs on Twitter and Instagram, it seems like the entire world or everybody in Dublin has somehow met Coolio. <laughs> and he spent so much time in Dublin in recent years. He was here, he was on the 6 o'clock. Yeah, I don't know how we missed out in Donegal, Kira, but everyone <laughs> seems to have met him. And there was we had a lot of people on the show today just talking about like just what a genuinely lovely, decent fella he was. He did a lot of work actually, even in times that he was in Dublin um, with different community groups. I spoke to a guy, Jonathan in Rathmines. He has Ernesto and um, Ernesto's cafe there, and he was telling me today on the show, you know, like about just even chatting to just young guys and in, in, in young community groups just an all-round good guy yeah and just, yeah. just really really nice level valley you know? rest in peace Coolio look that's it from us this evening my thank you to our guests our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok but from all of us here good night have a good weekend